Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. This is an election year. Will Donald Trump be re-elected? What is going on with the Democrats? And has America gone even more crazy? We'll be discussing all of these things and more, more than once a week, because we don't feel you have enough Americano in your life. And I have a special offer for Americano listeners. If you want to subscribe to the Spectator's US edition, which is brilliant, by the way, I edit it, you can go to www.spectator.us forward slash subscribe and take advantage of our special Americano offer. If you insert the code Americano in capital letters like Donald Trump on Twitter, you will get 5% off. Please do so. I'm joined today by the great Josh Glancy, who is Washington Bureau Chief for the Sunday Times. And he wrote an article yesterday about the Bloomberg campaign, with whom he's been embedded for a few days. Josh, what's it like on the Bloomberg campaign? Because as far as I can see, it's the best funded, uh, most glitzy political operation that's ever existed. Well, certainly the most glitzy, well-funded primary campaign that's ever existed. Uh, It felt much more like a presidential campaign, like the sort of mid to late stages of a presidential campaign. The scale, the lavishness, the organisation. I mean, the, the number of press officers, the just the, the amount of food, the freebies, the T-shirts, the bands, the endorsements. I mean, it really is a, a, a huge, well-oiled machine. And when you compare it to going out with on the Biden campaign or, or even the Buttigieg campaign, it's just nothing like it. I mean, it's, it's quite remarkable, the, the heft of it all. And I, I get the feeling that the media, obviously, I think, are increasingly loving the idea of Bloomberg versus Trump because it's got this kind of big clash feel to it. But also, voters and the media tend to think in the same way now about these things. And I was interested, somebody in your piece said it would be a, you know, a great heavyweight bout. Was that a Democratic voter? <laughs> yes, it was. It was someone at one of his events. I, th- I think a lot of the voters I spoke to seemed quite resigned to the fact that you sort of need someone of Bloomberg's wealth and power to defeat someone of Trump's wealth and power. And that's just how big time politics works in America. And they were sort of rather fearful of the idea of going up against Trump with a, a Buttigieg or a Klobuchar or, or even a Bernie who, who's too sort of radical for a lot of the people I met. I asked a lot of them, you know, well, does it worry you how, how much money there is in politics and having this guy seeming to sort of buy the nomination? And they said, well, a lot of people said, well, you know, that's <laughs> well, what can I do about that? You know, that's, that's the yes. system we have. So there was, there was a sense of inexorability about it in some ways. Well, it sort of speaks to the kind of late capitalist times in which we live, doesn't it? That, that it kind of, you know, Bloomberg is seen as a good candidate because he's, in terms of financial terms, he's a, he's a badass. You know, he can just, he can kick anyone's ass. If you'll forgive my slightly appalling. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, quite. Um, I mean, we know Bloomberg is, is very much a paternalist from his time as New York mayor. And there was something very paternalistic about this whole thing. He, he kept playing on these themes in his stump speech. You know, I, I'm not going to let Trump bully you. Donald Trump can't hurt me. I'm, you know, I'm bigger than Trump. Uh, I'm the real billionaire. And, and this filtered down to a lot of the people watching him as well. A lot of them said, well, you know, he's, He's a self-made billionaire. Like he's from New York, he understands Trump. I, I think a lot of Democrats are quite traumatized by four years of Trump, uh, and they see him as this kind of evil, unstoppable force. And they want someone who's bigger and stronger than him 
to make it stop. more evil and more unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, I mean, obviously, you know, he, he, Bloomberg is, is, is he, you know, he keeps describing himself on the sun as I'm the untrump, which is a bit of a clumsy line. But the point he's trying to make is like, that, you know, all of, I have all of Donald Trump's special powers, but I'm on your side. I mean, that's the pitch. Uh, yes. And it, you know, it, it is sort of resonating. I mean, he's obviously had a big surge in the polls and, you know, his big, and we're going to find out on Super Tuesday whether this is really working or not, but it, it, certainly the crowds and the voters I saw were were responding. But, I mean, he, he, is, he is the un-Trump. He's sort of the anti- Macron called himself the anti-Trump in his election, a successful election campaign the year after Trump. And I can see that it's more effective if you're going to be a kind of centrist candidate like Mike Bloomberg to be aggressive in your defence of... Liberal values, and it's interesting that you know when a couple of days ago Bloomberg replied to Trump that he was a oh, what did he call it? a carnival barking mm. circus barking clown or something like that, and anyway, and everyone sort of cheered, and and you know people kind of celebrated this sort of oh he's tough, he's going to be as tough as Trump, it's going to be a real fight. But at the same time, I mean, when you say he's that he can say to voters, I've got the special magic powers that Trump has, he doesn't really, I don't think, because his special power is enormous amounts of money, which Trump, you know, you can with lots of stupid arguments about how rich Trump is. He is very rich, but he never really spent much of his money on the campaign trail, whereas Bloomberg is willing to throw everything. And then in terms of as a candidate, yes, he will say tough things back, but he's very different uh, in his appeal. He's He's got none of the charisma or certainly a very different type of charisma to Donald Trump. And... I mean, I think he's a very awkward public speaker. I think Trump is a is a is a rambling public speaker, but he makes for good telly or good sound bites anyway. Yeah, no, you're definitely right. I mean, Bloomberg is not an inspirational speaker or a charismatic one, and in fact, he, he garbles his words quite often, and he he has no kind of rhythm or cadence that sort of keeps you fixated on what he's saying. I mean, I, I think they just have some very key biographical points in common and they know each other which seems a lot of voters seem quite reassured by you know speaking to people in Tennessee they they sort of see it as this whole weird thing that the Democrats in Tennessee this weird thing that's emanated from New York Trump's this kind of monstrous sort of love child of of New York and and that you need another big New York brash New Yorker to stop him Um, Mm. you know they have this sense of you know the money, the, the the tough talking, the kind of the history of the history of yep. being a kind of a big sort of male alpha male in, in in Manhattan, alpha male. The sort of the, I think they just I think it's a quite a crude thing. I mean, obviously they're politically very different, and Bloomberg's not. I mean, really not channeling any of the populist energy we've seen in American politics. But they are both big Manhattan primates, and I think on that very crude level. They're similar, and that's something that people find reassuring. And that's interesting because I think that might be part of a lot of the reason why America's so unhappy is the the amazing cultural political power that is now accumulating in New York. Because it's interesting that even someone like Bernie Sanders is is a sort of New York creature, and so it, you know he's he's not a billionaire and he's not he he doesn't speak to sort of New York wealth in that way, but the the kind of cultural power of New York means that the elections, last two elections anyway, have been all about New Yorkers, really. It's remarkable. I mean, and Bloomberg versus Bernie, which is the first, you know, we talk about Bloomberg up against Trump, and that's 
because a lot of things have to happen for, for that to be the case. But Bloomberg versus Bernie is looking increasingly possible. And that is really, you know, Manhattan versus Brooklyn. Um, yes, yes. Two Jewish guys. Yeah, two, two, two 70 septuagenarian Jewish guys, you know, one of whom is from the tradition of kind of radical socialist left-wing Jew- Jewish thought, and the other is, a, you know, an all-American you know, finance billionaire. And it is so centered in New York in the same way that, you know, Clinton versus Trump was, was kind of, was the sort of liberal elite of the city versus the outer boroughs. So, yeah, I, I think a lot of the country, certainly as people I spoke to in Tennessee, were just like, we don't really understand what goes on in New York. But, uh, you know, and a couple of them said to me, well, they're reassured by Bloomberg's time as mayor because they're like, well, if you can control New York, then America will be a breeze because they all just think New York's a complete zoo. <laughs> Steve Bannon describes Bloomberg as a Republican oligarch, which is a very Bannonite way of describing Bloomberg. But it's it's he's got a point. I mean, th- I see in your in your piece, Bloomberg said to you he wasn't trying to buy the election, but it's it's hard to see how how he isn't when he's willing to make this much spend and. I mean, it's not just about advertising, is it? It's about his sort of history of donating to small political groups who might otherwise oppose him, but who will now feel in his debt. Yeah, I mean, I, I said you could quibble over the Republican side of that. I think what he means by that is, you know, if you were to paint in the 1980s, if you were a Democrat and you wanted to paint the archetypal Republican villain, you would probably paint someone that's quite a lot like Bloomberg. Yes. I mean, I went to dinner on... Saturday night in Richmond, and it was the uh, Virginia Democratic Party's annual gala dinner, sort of huge fundraiser, and Bloomberg was the keynote speaker. And it was a fascinating thing because he, he, you know, he has basically, Virginia, he's put more money into Virginia politics than just about anywhere else. He's funded a lot of the Congress people who won in 2018, he sort of funded their campaigns. And so, of course, they invited him to be the keynote speaker, but it is basically like a a sort of semi-hostile takeover of the party. Yeah. And, you know, it's like a sort of leveraged buyout of the party. And what was fascinating was I came into the event and there were two groups of protesters outside. On one side of the street were sort of Bernie bros and a little bit of Antifa. And they were sort of holding signs about billionaires and you know, racist Wall Street billionaire or whatever. And then on the other side of the street, you had a bunch of dudes carrying AR-15 guns you know, real tough kind of Republican populist. Oh, yes, because Bloomberg's very anti-gun. Yeah, saying, you know, guns save lives and, you know, get hands off our guns. So it was amazing. And I spoke to some of them and, and I said, you know, and they said, I said, I bet you've never protested on, alongside <laughs> these people before. And he's like, yeah, well, I guess it takes Mike Bloomberg to unite us. Yeah. Which tells you a lot. I mean, it is, it's, if you're talking about populism versus the establishment, and that divide, then there are some strange new alliances that will be formed by a Bloomberg presidency. Yes, I mean, that would be that, you know, in these populist times, in these, this age of anti-politics uh, or anti-elites, he is the, the, the worst possible candidate in many ways. And particularly if, as Judge reports, I mean, I'm, it doesn't seem like it's true, but Judge reports over the weekend that he was considering Hillary Clinton as his vice president, I mean, that seems like the sort of perfect ticket ticket from hell. Yes, I mean, I, I looked into that story. I, I, my sense was that there was possibly one conversation that Judge somehow picked up on, but I, no one else followed it up. I really don't think it's true. And there were there were some there were some very obvious female candidates he could choose that aren't Hillary Clinton. I don't think he's 
he's many things, Bloomberg, but he's not stupid. Yes, people say Stacey Abrams, is that? Uh, I mean, Stacey Abrams, yes. I think he'd be more inclined maybe to a Kamala Harris or an A.B. Klobuchar. Because, yeah. I mean, Stacey Abrams, she, yeah, she gives you a lot of credibility with with the sort of social justice progressive wing, but she hasn't really done a huge amount. And I don't know if she'd actually want to campaign with him. <laughs> so, yes. But that's, you know, I guess that's, that's further down the line. But it would have to be a, a female VP, you'd think. And the, for a long time, the thinking has been that Bloomberg could still not run and just back away from the race and put all his money behind the kind of moderate lane Democrat that he thinks has got the best chance of winning. I think we're we're probably getting past that now, aren't we? Was that your impression? Yeah, certainly. Well, obviously, the campaign are going to talk the talk in terms of thinking he can win the nomination. But I think they're starting to believe their own polling. And certainly the campaign, at first, it seemed like it was going to be just a, another Tom Steyer-style vanity play. It's clearly more than that at this stage. And the, you know, the Bloomberg backlash is in fully underway in, in the media and the Oppo research dumps. So, yeah, I, I think they're starting to believe it. But at the same time, if he does fizzle out, he will he will swing behind one of the moderates. I, you know, the interesting question is if Bernie gets the nomination, Bloomberg has promised that he will put his billions in, in service of Bernie's campaign. Yes. I'm not sure about that. No, I mean, I think it's almost unanimously agreed he won't do that, but it's he has to he has to make it sound like he'll do that. Otherwise, he might not get the nomination, right? Correct. Yeah. Which is not an ideal situation for the Democratic Party. I mean, it's very interesting you say it's like a hostile takeover because in many ways the Sanders campaign and the possible Sanders nomination is is like a hostile takeover of the of the Democratic Party as well. So the actual Republican establishment is is weaker even than the Republican establishment was in 2016. It's kind of a shell at this stage, and yeah. that shell is exemplified by by Joe Biden, right? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, Joe Biden couldn't embody the sort of huff. Of, of mainstream democratic politics more effectively if he tried. They are so... Husk is a better word than a shell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, either way. But, you know, as you said, probably even weaker than the Republicans were in 2016. And, you know, you have the... Bernie's not really a Democrat, or Bloomberg's not really a Democrat. Uh, and the sort of... The, the great hope of the party, I suppose you'd have to say, is someone like Pete Buttigieg. But he's just a sort of, you know... Poundland Obama really isn't he, and everyone yes. knows it. Or even a Poundland Bloomberg, actually. <laughs> wow. Wall Street Pete, I heard them calling it at the Bernie rally. Yeah, I prefer Mayo Pete myself. But... Mayo Pete that should have stuck more. <laughs> but I mean, I know this is sort of a—it's quite tiresome speculation as to as to you know who would Trump rather face, and there's mm. no one really, no one really knows. But I mean, I think people think for sort of psychological reasons, Bloomberg would would freak him out because Bloomberg's richer. And so on, but I would have. I mean, my theory is that he would, he would, he would think he can beat both pretty easily, uh, but he might be a little more nervous about a Bernie revolution. I think you're, I think that's right. I, you know, I think Trump thinks he can beat everyone because uh, he's obviously a very stable genius. But <laughs> I think he would fancy his chances. He's got. It's a very obvious line of attack for both of them. You know, Bernie is a communist. He will say. And there's endless clips they can play of him sort of praising chandeliers in Moscow or whatever. And mm. Bloomberg is a Wall Street billionaire who's trying to buy the election. He's the establishment. He's everything that Trump claims not to be. So I yes. think he, he he's five foot five. 
There he's is, actually it's five foot eight, isn't he? Trump people call him five foot five, but he's actually five foot eight, I think. He's five foot eight, but he is he is diminutive and probably has shrunk an inch. He's yes. seventy eight after all. I, there has always been a, a lingering respect in Trump world for Bernie, in the sense that they see him as a real enemy, an mm. authentic enemy, and they understand that he channels much of what they seek to channel. I was talking to a guy called Curtis Ellis recently, who runs the uh, America First Super PAC. And, you know, he's a real, a real, sort of real populist. And, and people like, and he, he has a lot of respect for Bernie. I mean, they think he's, you know, a terrible socialist, but they respect the fact that he agrees with them on, on the establishment and they see him mm. as authentic. And in a funny way, I think they'd quite like to run against him because I think they'd see it as a, as a genuine clash of ideas rather than Trump just kind of kicking the bloated, rotten carcass of the sort of liberal elite again. Do you think um, Barack Obama would endorse Bloomberg? I mean, he probably would eventually, but my, my thinking is he might do it quite quickly. I'd be very surprised if he did it quickly. I, I think Obama must be just head in hand at the moment. I think he probably would endorse Bloomberg very reluctantly. It was interesting. Bloomberg signed up last week a guy called Cornell Belcher to, his, to be an advisor who was one of Obama's top pollsters and yeah. an sort of influential figure in kind of black democratic politics. And that was an interesting finding. I, I think Obama would endorse Bloomberg. I think he would probably endorse Bernie, but I, I don't think he would want to endorse either. So I, I can't imagine he'll make a move anytime soon. Well, that's, I mean, that seems to be Obama's, I mean, Obama will be very important for mobilising the black vote, although despite pushing quite hard for Hillary Clinton in 2016, he he didn't, in, by the end, he was pushing very hard. The Blackfoot didn't really come out in in, his, in the numbers it needed to to make her win. Bloomberg's appeal to black voters is obviously very very uh, flawed in a way because of stop and frisk and his kind of history with that. What was the impression you got on the campaign with them about that? Yeah, I mean that that's going to be one of the really interesting. It's already one of the really interesting issues. Obviously, he has a, a really serious history in that area, uh, both of policies and remarks about policies that he's made, about redlining, stuff and frisk, all that sort of thing. So I was just to realise for listeners who might not know, this was as mayor, he took over from Rudy Giuliani, who had started stop and frisk, but he really amplified it and made it a very, very vigorous anti-gun crime, gun and knife crime campaign in New York City. And I think he sort of increased the number of arrests by some extraordinary percentage. Mm. And it is widely thought that it, it fell into racial profiling. I mean, and, and, and I think it was. And he justified it at the time by saying, well, that's where the crime is, so what are you going to do? He has now apologised for that. And, and at the speech he made on Saturday, he apologised again. He added it, an apology to the beginning of his stump speech, which was interesting. He's obviously feeling a little bit of pressure on that. Bloomberg and the black vote is going to be fascinating. He, he's actually got quite a lot of endorsements already from black mayors, from some congressional black caucus members. Now, a lot of that is to, you would think is to do with the way he's funded certainly a lot of mayoral campaigns and that sort of thing all over the country you know at least a lot of those mayors have benefited from his largesse shall we say yes but but a lot of the people i spoke to on the ground i I sort of made a point of trying to speak to a lot of african-american voters because i was really interested in this point and you know it's it's self-selecting because it's the people that come to his events and you know I'm, i'm in tennessee not in new york or california or whatever but a lot of the voters i spoke to said you know they they probably heard a little bit about stop and frisk they were a little bit troubled by it but a lot of them said, oh, well, he's apologised, or, well, no one's perfect. And yes. they weren't really that interested in litigating it, and they sort of felt 
a lot of them were ex-Biden voters. They like Bloomberg for a lot of the same reasons that they used to like Biden, which is that he's a big name and a big character who they feel can go up against Trump, who has the stature to match Trump. And there wasn't that much concern. Now, these are kind of older black voters in the South. It would definitely hurt him more in some of the liberal cities, but then that's probably not where he needs to pick up that much support. Maybe in the primaries he does. So it's a really interesting one. They are unveiling every day. They're unveiling new initiatives, new adverts aimed at black voters. So, you know, they know it's a problem and they know it's probably going to be the definitive demographic. But he's having quite a surprising amount of success with it so far. And the polls have shown that that he's now second to Biden amongst African-American voters. In a way, he's benefiting from the fact, and this is what Cornell Belcher told me the other week, that apart from Biden, who is a bit of a sort of deflating balloon, no one else has a successful pitch to black voters apart from Bernie, who really only hits people under 40. So all the black voters don't really have that many options on the table. And so it's kind of open for Bloomberg again, this kind of host, this sort of semi-hostile takeover. You can just chuck money in organisation at it and, and see what happens. He can also chuck enormous amounts of money just at, at the messaging to different groups because, well, firstly, because of the sheer weight of money he can throw at anything. But secondly, because of this huge sort of data arsenal he has, probably the the biggest data arsenal any campaign will ever have. And, and of course, he doesn't really seem to have a a sort of clear ideology beyond, you know, a, a, a love of, of um, fi- the financial, the importance of the finan- financial markets for the world. He doesn't sort of have anything he really needs to stand up for. So he could just fire messages about one message about immigration to one lot of voters and another lot about how tough he is on t- crime and law and order to another. Yeah, I think that's probably very slightly too unfair harsh. on Bloomberg in that there are some key issues where he, he does, which he does care about and has made a point of caring about. One is climate change. Well, climate change, another, yeah. Another is gun control. And people know yeah. that about him, you know, because he funded Every Town, which was a big gun control organization, and he's poured lots of money into climate change. So I think on those two issues, he does have quite a lot of mainstream democratic goodwill. But more generally, you know, he will, they will target who they need to target. But the organization is remarkable. And, and there's a feeling in democratic politics that they've fallen very far behind the Republicans on digital organization. And mm-hmm. that after the sort of glory years of the Obama elections, that the, the Republicans overtook them in 2016 and did much better Facebook targeting and that sort of thing. And the Bloomberg campaign feels that they have the kind of data chops to to sort of take it to the Republicans on this and that actually, again, the kind of mainstream Democrats are, are sort of floundering slightly in that in that area too. So that's another thing they're sort of keen to emphasise. But, I mean, I tend to be quite kind of sceptical about how effective the whiz-bangery data stuff can be. I mean, my feeling is that with Bloomberg, you're going to get the, they're going to convince themselves they're doing something utterly brilliant and unprecedented because when you pay a lot of consultants lots of money they have to do that but they might exaggerate the effectiveness of what they can do it's perfectly possible i mean certainly the the clinton campaign in 2016 thought they were doing very clever data-driven politics and they weren't trump for all that they had a good facebook targeting campaign you know basically his campaign was really just about unleashing his id on middle america and that worked so yeah I, i tend to agree with you i think the limits of data are significant but Bloomberg is, is Mr. Data. He's Mr. Analysis. He, he doesn't do anything unless uh, 
you know, 15 consultants and 27 PowerPoints to tell them to. So that's how I'll do it. <laughs> whether it yeah. gets there, whether it works, yeah. you know. You can feel voter hearts warming as they as they hear those words. Josh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Speak to you soon, I hope. Thanks, Freddie.